mind of the brilliance of Edward Witten's comes along in mathematical physics about once every 50 years, if we're lucky. Since the late 1970s, he's been preeminent among the physicists who are trying to understand the underlying order of the universe, or as you might say, trying to discover the most fundamental equations of physics. More than that, by studying the mathematical qualities of nature, Witten became remarkably influential in pure mathematics. The only physicist ever to have won the coveted Fields Medal, which has much the same stature in mathematics as the Nobel Prize has in physics. My name is Graham Farmelow, author of The Universe Speaks in Numbers. Witten is a central figure in my book, and he's been helpful to me, though he's a reluctant interviewee. So I was pleased when he agreed to talk with me last August about some aspects of his career and the relationship between mathematics and physics. He was in a relaxed mood, sitting on his sofa in his office at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, wearing his tennis clothes. As usual, he speaks quietly, so you'll have to listen hard. He uses quite a few technical terms too, but if you're not familiar with them, I suggest that you just let them wash over you. The key thing is to get a sense of Witten's thinking about the big picture, and it's worth it. He gives us several illuminating insights into how he became interested in state-of-the-art mathematics while remaining a physicist to his fingertips. I began by asking him if he'd always been interested in mathematics and physics. Well, when I was a kid, I was very interested in astronomy. Right. It was the period of the space race, and everybody was interested in space. Yeah. Then when I was a little older, I was exposed to calculus by my father. Your father, yeah. And for a while, I was very interested in math. Mm-hmm. Oh, you said for a while, so did that lapse? For a few years. Yes. yes, it did lapse for a few years. And the reason it lapsed, I think, was that after being exposed to calculus at the age of 11, it actually was quite a while before I was shown anything that was really more advanced. So I wasn't really aware that there was much more interesting, more advanced math. Right. That's not, probably not the only reason, but it's definitely one reason that my interest lies. Yeah. Were you ever interested in any other subjects? I mean, because, you know, you came on to study history and things like that. But did that really interest you comparably well, to math and physics? Or? I guess there was a period when I imagined doing journalism or history or something. But at about the age of 21 or 22, I realized that that wasn't going to work out well in my case. After studying modern languages, he worked on George McGovern's ill-fated presidential campaign and even studied economics for one semester before he finally turned to physics. Apparently, he showed up at Princeton University wanting to do a PhD in theoretical physics and they wisely took him on after he made short work of some preliminary exams. Boy, did he learn quickly. One of the instructors tasked with teaching him in the lab told me that within three weeks, Witten's questions on the experiments went from basic to brilliant to Nobel level. As a postdoc in Harvard, Witten became acquainted with several of the theorist pioneers of this model, including Stephen Weinberg, Shelley Glashow, Howard Georgi, and Sidney Coleman, who helped interest the young Witten in the mathematics of these new theories. The physicists I learned from most during those years were definitely Weinberg, Glashow, George I. and Coleman. Yeah. And they were completely different. Yeah, yeah. So George I. and Glashow were doing model building, basically weak interaction model building, elaborations on the standard model. Mm. I found it fascinating, but it was a little bit hard to find an entree there. If the world had been a little bit different, I might have made my career doing things like they were doing. Wow. 
This was the first time I'd heard Witten say that he was at first expecting to be like most other theorists and take his inspiration from the results of experiments, building so-called models of the real world. What, I wondered, led him to change direction and become so mathematical? Let me provide a little background for your mm. listeners. Mm. Up to, and including really, the time I was a graduate student, for 20, 25 years, there had been constant waves of new discoveries in elementary particle physics. Mm. Strange particles, muons, hadronic resonances, parity violation, CP violation, scaling and deep and elastic scattering, the charm particle. Mm -hmm. And I'm forgetting a whole bunch. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. Yeah. But anyway, that is enough to give you the idea. Mm -hmm. So that was over a period of a little over 20 years. So even though I forgot a lot of the big discoveries, that was one every three years. Now, if experimental surprises and discoveries had continued like that, mm -hmm. which at the time I assumed would happen because mm -hmm. it had been going on for a quarter century, mm -hmm. uh, then I would have expected to be involved in model building or grappling with it, mm -hmm. like colleagues such as George Ann Glashall were doing mm -hmm. most notably. Mm -hmm. However, it turned out that this period of constant surprise and turmoil was ending just while I was a graduate student. And therefore, later on, I had mm -hmm. more successful directions. Do you remember being disappointed by that in any sense? Of course I was disappointed. You I never stopped being disappointed. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, it's a hard life. <laughs> but you were disappointed by the, by the drying up, so to speak, of uh, the... Uh... Well, there have been important experimental discoveries since then. Yeah. But the, the pace has not been quite the same. Yeah. Although they've been very important, they've been a little bit more abstract in what they teach us. Mm. And definitely they've offered fewer opportunities for model building than was the case in the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. I'd like to just tell you a word or two mm. about my interaction with the other physicists. Yeah. There was Steve Weinberg. Oh, yeah. And what I remember best from Weinberg, he was one of the pioneers of a subject called current algebra, which was mm. an important part of understanding the nuclear force. Mm. But he obviously thought most other physicists didn't understand it properly. And I was one of those who right. didn't understand okay. it properly. <laughs> yes. So whenever current algebra was mentioned at a seminar or a discussion meeting, he would always give a short little speech explaining his understanding of it. Right. In my case, after hearing those speeches eight to ten times, I just said what Steve was telling us. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my goodness. Mm. Then there was Sidney Coleman. Ah. First of all, Sidney was the only one who was interested in strong coupling behavior of quantum field theories, mm. which is what I'd become interested in as a graduate student, yeah. with encouragement from my then advisor, David Gross. So he was really the only one one could interact with about that. Others regarded strong coupling as a black box. Mm -hmm. So maybe for your listeners, I should explain that if you're a student in physics, they teach you what to do when quantum effects are small, but no one tells you what to do when yep. quantum effects are big. There's no general answer. Mm -hmm. It's a smorgasbord of different methods that work for different problems and a lot of problems that are intractable. Mm -hmm. So I'd become interested in that as a student, but I was mostly beating my head against a brick wall because it is usually intractable. And Sydney was the only one of the professors at Harvard interested in such matters. Mm -hmm. So apart from interacting with him about that, also he exposed me to a number of mathematical topics I wouldn't have known about otherwise right. that eventually were important in my work, yeah. which most physicists didn't know about, mm. and certainly I didn't know about. Yeah. Can I ask, were you consciously interested in advanced pure math at that time? Definitely or not. You were not? No, most definitely not. I got dragged into math gradually because, you see, the standard model had been discovered, so the problems in physics were not exactly the same as they had been before. Mm. But there were new problems that were opened up by the standard model. Mm. For one thing, there was new math that came into understanding the standard model. Mm -hmm. Just when I was finishing graduate school, more or less, mm. Polyakov and others introduced the Yang-Mills instanton, which has proved to be important in understanding physics. It's also had a lot of mathematical 
applications. You can think of instantons as fleeting events that occur in space and time on the subatomic scale. These events are predicted by the theories of the subatomic world known as gauge theories. A key moment in this story is Witten's first meeting with the great mathematician Michael Atiyah at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. They would become the leaders of the trend towards a more mathematical approach to our understanding of the world. So Polyakov and others had discovered the Engels instanton, and it was important in physics and proved to have many other applications. Mm -hmm. And then Atiyah was one of the mathematicians who discovered amazing mathematical methods that could be used to solve the instanton equation. So he was lecturing about that when he visited in Cambridge, I think in the spring of 1977, but mm. I could be off by a few months. And I was extremely interested, and so we talked about it a lot. I probably made more of an effort to understand the math involved than most of the other physicists did. Mm -hmm. Anyway, this interaction certainly led to my learning all kinds of math I'd never heard of before. Complex manifolds, sheaf cohomology groups. This was news to you at that time? Definitely, so, I might tell you at an even more basic level, the Atiyah-Singer index theorem yes. had been news to me a few months earlier when I heard about it from Sidney Coleman. The index theorem, first proved by Michael Atiyah and his friend Isidore Singer, connects two branches of mathematics that had seemed unconnected. Calculus, that's the mathematics of changing quantities, and topology, about the properties of objects that don't change when they're stretched, twisted, or deformed in some way. Topology is now central to our understanding of fundamental physics. Like other physics graduate students of the period, I had no inkling of any 20th century math, really. So I had never heard of the names of here and Singer or of the concept of the index or of their index theorem until Albert Schwartz showed that it was relevant to understanding instantons. And even then, that paper didn't make an immediate splash. Right. If Coleman hadn't pointed it out, mm -hmm. I'm not sure how long it would have been before I knew about it. And then there was progress in understanding the instanton equations mm -hmm. by Atiyah, among others. The first, actually, was Richard Ward, Penrose's oh, graduate yeah. student. Mm -hmm. So I got interested in that, but I was interested, in a sense, in a narrow way, which is what good would it be in physics? And I learned the math, or some of the math, that Atiyah was using, but I was a little skeptical about the applicability for physics, and I wasn't really wrong, because at least the original program of Polyakov's didn't quite work, mm -hmm. and the details of the instanton equations that were beautifully elucidated by the mathematicians mm -hmm. were not, in practice, that helpful for things you could actually do as a physicist. Mm -hmm. So, to sort of summarize what happened in the long run, Atiyah's work and that of his colleagues made me learn a lot of math I'd never heard of before, which turned out to be very important later. I see. But not, per se, for the original reasons. Uh, okay. When did you start to become convinced that math was really going to be interesting for physicists? <laughs> well, it gradually happened in the 1980s, I guess. Right. So, for example, one early episode, which was in 1981 or two, um, I was trying to understand the properties of what's called the vacuum, the quantum ground state, mm -hmm. in supersymmetric field theories. Mm -hmm. And it really had some behavior that was hard to explain using standard physics ideas. And since I couldn't understand it, I kept looking at simpler and simpler models, and they all had the same puzzle. Mm -hmm. So finally I got to what seemed like the simplest possible model in which you could ask the question, and it still had a puzzling behavior. Mm -hmm. But at a certain point, I think when I was in a swimming pool in Aspen, Colorado, yep. I remember Robot and actually Atiyah also, had given some lectures to physicists a couple of years earlier in CarJS 
and they had tried to explain something called Morse theory to us. Morse theory, yeah. I'm sure that, like me, none of the physicists there had ever heard of Morse theory, mm-hmm. or were familiar with any of the questions it addresses. Mm-hmm. Would you like to say what Morse theory is, roughly speaking? Well, if you've got a rubber ball floating in space, mm-hmm. it's got a lowest point, mm-hmm. at which the elevation is lowest, it's got a highest point, mm-hmm. where the elevation is highest. Mm-hmm. So it's got a maximum and a minimum. Mm-hmm. If you have a more complicated surface, like, for example, a rubber inner tube, Mm. It'll have saddle points of the height function as mm. well as a maximum and minimum. Mm-hmm. And Morse theory relates the maximum and minima and the saddle points of a function such as the height function All right. to the topology mm-hmm. yeah. of a surface or a topological manifold mm-hmm. on which the function is defined. Have you seen that paper by Maxwell on that when he spoke about, let's say, in 1870? I've not read Maxwell. Oh, well, I'll, I'll show it to you later. Okay. That, uh, on Hills and Dales, he gave it in Liverpool. Very thinly attended talk, but um, anyway, I'll... Uh, so was that. he, in effect, describing the two-dimensional version of Morse theory? Uh, I can't give it in detail, but that, uh, the, the, in history of Morse theory, they often refer to that. At, at a public meeting, incidentally, in Liverpool. Okay. But, um, anyway. I have, actually, now you mentioned it, heard the title of Hills and Dales as the title of a talk by Maxwell. Yeah. That had something to do with the beginnings of topology. Yeah. And topology was just barely beginning in roughly that period. But this was useful in physics. This is the point. Your Raspin swimming pool revelation. Or well, it shed a little bit of light on the vacuum state and supersymmetric quantum theories. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, I developed that further. So, you know, at first that seemed exceptional, but mm. eventually there were too many of these exceptions to completely ignore. Mm. Am I right in saying, it was into your mouth, but it was the advent of string theory post Michael Green and John Schwartz where these things started going well, front and centre? Is that fair? After... Following the first superstring revolution, as people call it, mm. which came to fruition in 1984 yeah. with the work of Green and Schwartz on the anomalies. After that, the sort of math that Atiyah and others had used for the instanton equation was suddenly actually useful in mm. physics because to understand string theory, mm. complex manifolds, mm. index theory, sheaf cohomology groups, all those funny things were actually useful in doing basic things like constructing models of the elementary particles mm-hmm. in string theory. Mm-hmm. I should give a slightly better explanation. In physics, there are the forces that we see for the elementary particles. That means basically everything except gravity. Mm-hmm. Then there's gravity, which is so weak that we only see it for macroscopic masses like the Earth or the Sun. Mm-hmm. Now, we describe gravity by Einstein's theory, and, mm. and we describe the rest of it by quantum field theory. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to combine the two together. Before 1984, you couldn't make an even halfway reasonable model of elementary particles that included all the forces together with gravity. The advance that Green and Schwartz made with anomaly cancellation in 1984 made that possible. But to make such models, you needed um, to use a lot of the math that physicists had not used previously, but which was introduced by T and others when they solved the instanton equation. So you Mm -hmm. had to use complex manifolds, chief cohomology groups, and things that were totally alien to the education of a physics Mm -hmm. graduate student back in the days when I'd been a student. Mm -hmm. So those things were useful even at a basic level in making a model of the elementary particles with gravity. And if you wanted to understand it more deeply, you ended up using still more math. So after string theory was developed enough that you could use it in an interesting way to make models of particle physics, mm-hmm. it was clear that a lot of previously unfamiliar math was important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I speak loosely when I say previously unfamiliar because obviously it was familiar to some people. Mm-hmm. First of all, to the mathematicians. Mm-hmm. Secondly, in some areas, like Penrose had used some of it mm-hmm. in his first mm-hmm. theory. Mm-hmm. But... Um, 
broadly speaking, unfamiliar to most mm-hmm. physicists. So we actually went to an area when physics was very, very important for mathematicians and mathematics was very important for physicists. They were working harmoniously alongside each other. You go back to Leibniz and he used to talk about the pre-established harmony between math and physics. That was one of Einstein's favourite phrases. Yes. Is it something you regard as a fact of life or is it something you regard as possibly going to be explained one day, will never be explained? Do you have any comment at all on that relationship? Well, the intimate tie between math and physics seems to be a fact of life. I can't imagine what it would mean to explain it. Mm-hmm. The world does seem to be based on theories that involve interesting math. And a lot of interesting math is at least partly inspired by the role that it plays in physics. Not all, of course. But does it inspire you when you see a piece of math that's very relevant to physics and vice versa when you're helping mathematicians? Does that motivate you in some way to think you're on the right track? Well, when something turns out to be beautiful, that does encourage you to believe that it's on the right track. Right. Classic Dirac, um, <laughs> but he took it, as he put it, to almost a religion. Um, well, but I, I sense you're a little bit more uh, sceptical, if that's the right word, or well, hard-nosed about it, I don't know. But. Well, having discovered the Dirac equation, Dirac was entitled to come his views <laughs> to extremes, let's put it that way. Witten has long been a leading pioneer of the string framework, which seeks to give a unified account of all the fundamental forces based on quantum mechanics and special relativity. It describes the basic entities of nature in terms of tiny pieces of string. Going back to string theories, do you see that as one among several candidates or the preeminent candidate or what? I mean, what do you see the status of that framework in the landscape of mathematical physics? I'd say that string slash M theory is the only really interesting direction we have for going beyond the established framework of physics, Mm -hmm. by which I mean quantum field theory at the quantum level. Mm -hmm and classical general relativity mm-hmm. at the macroscopic scale. Mm-hmm. So where we've made progress, it's been in the string slash M3 framework, where a lot of interesting things have been discovered. I say that there's a mm-hmm. lot of interesting things we don't understand at all. Mm-hmm. But you've never been tempted down the other routes of other options? For I'm not even sure what you would mean by other routes. Uh, loop quantum of, gravity? Uh, or... Those are just words. Is there it... aren't any other routes. <laughs> okay, all right. Fair enough. <laughs> there are words. No all right. So there we have it. The preternaturally cautious Witten says that if we want to discover a unified theory of all the fundamental forces, string theory is the only interesting way forward that's arisen. Where we are now strikes me as being quite an unusual time in particle physics, because so many of us were looking forward to the Large Hadron Collider, this huge energy available and finding the Higgs boson and maybe supersymmetry. And yet it seems that, yes, we got the Higgs particle just as we were hoping and expecting, but nothing else that's really stimulating. You thought, what are your views on where we are now? My generation grew up with the belief, a very, very strong belief, which, by the way, was bumped into us by Steve Weinberg, among others, mm. that when physics reached the energy scale at which you could understand the weak interactions, mm. you would not only discover the mechanism of electroweak symmetry breaking, mm-hmm. but you'd learn what fixes its energy scale as mm. being relatively low mm-hmm. compared to the scale of gravity. Mm-hmm. That's what ultimately makes gravity so weak mm-hmm. in ordinary terms. So it came as a big surprise that we reached the energy scale to study the W and the Z and even the Higgs particle without finding a bigger mechanism behind it. Mm-hmm. That's an extremely shocking development mm-hmm. in the context of the thinking that I grew up with. Mm-hmm. There's another shock which also occurred during that 40-year period, mm-hmm. which possibly should be compared to it. This is the discovery that the acceleration of the expansion of the universe. For decades, physicists assumed that because of the gravitational attraction of matter, mm-hmm. the expansion of the universe would be slowing down mm-hmm. and tried to measure it 
It turned out that the expansion is actually speeding up. Mm-hmm. And although we don't know this for sure, it seems quite likely that that results from the effects of Einstein's cosmological constant, yep. which is incredibly small but not zero. The two things, the very, very small but not zero cosmological constant and the scale of weak interactions, the scale of elementary particle masses, which in human terms can seem like a lot of energies, but it's very small compared to other energies in physics. Mm-hmm. The two puzzles are analogous, and they're both extremely bothersome. Mm-hmm. These two puzzles, although primarily the one in gravity, which was discovered first, are perhaps the main motivation for discussions of a cosmic landscape, a vacua, mm-hmm. which is an idea that used to make me extremely uncomfortable and unhappy, I guess because of the challenge it poses to trying to understand the universe and the possibly unfortunate implications for our distant descendants tens of billions of years from now. I guess I ultimately made my peace with it, recognizing that the universe hadn't been created for our convenience. (laughs) So you come to terms with... uh, I've come to terms with the landscape idea in the sense of not being upset about it as I was for many years. Really? Absolutely. I still would prefer to have a different explanation, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't upset me personally to the extent it used to. So just to conclude, what would you say the principal challenges are now to people looking at fundamental physics? I think it's quite possible that new observations, either in astronomy or accelerators, will turn up new and more down-to-earth challenges. But with what we have now, and also with my own personal inclinations, it's hard to avoid answering you in terms of cosmic challenges. Hmm. I actually believe that string-slash-M theory is on the right track toward a more deeper explanation. Mm -hmm. But at a very fundamental level, it's not well understood. Yeah. And I'm not even confident that we have a good concept of what sort of thing is missing, well to, mm-hmm. let alone where to find it. Mm-hmm. The reason I'm not is that, in hindsight, it's clear that a view we might have given in the 1980s about what was missing was too narrow. Mm-hmm. Instead mm-hmm. of discovering what we thought was missing, instead we broadened the picture in the 90s mm-hmm. in unexpected directions. Mm-hmm. And having lived through that, I feel it might happen again. Mm-hmm. To give you a slightly less cosmic answer, if you ask me where I think is the most likely um, direction for another major theoretical upheaval that mm-hmm. happened in the 80s and then again in the 90s. Mm-hmm. I've come to believe that the whole it from qubit stuff, the relation between geometry and entanglement, right. is the most interesting direction. It from bit. That was a phrase coined by the late American theoretician John Wheeler, who guessed that the stuff of nature, the it, might ultimately be built from the bits of information. Perhaps the theory of information is showing us the best way forward in fundamental physics. Whitney is usually wary of making strong pronouncements about the future of his subject, so I was struck by his interest in this line of inquiry, now extremely popular. I feel that if in my active career there will be another real upheaval, that's where it's most likely to come. So I'm trying to get involved. Uh-huh. I had a sense, both in the early 80s and in the early 90s, I had a sense a couple of years in advance of the big upheavals, where they were most likely to come from, and in those two times, it did turn out to be right. Mm. Then for a long, long time, I had no idea where another upheaval might come from. But in the last few years, I've become convinced it's most likely to be the it from qubit stuff, of which I've not been a pioneer. No. Mm-hmm. But, and I was not one of the first to reach the conclusion I'm, or mm. suspicion that I'm telling you right now. Mm. But anyway, it's the view I've come to. There's a famous book about the night thoughts of a quantum physicist. Are there night thoughts of a string theorist where you have a wonderful theory that's developing and you're unable to uh, to test it? Does that ever bother you? <laughs> well, of course it bothers us, but we have to live with yeah. our existential condition. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But let's backtrack 34 years. Mm-hmm. So 
in the early 80s, there were a lot of hints that something important was happening in string theory. Mm -hmm. But when Green and Schwartz discovered the anomaly cancellation, it became possible to make models of elementary particle physics unified with gravity. Mm. From then, I thought the direction was clear. Mm. But some senior physicists rejected it completely mm. on the grounds that it would supposedly be untestable, mm -hmm. or even if correct, it would be too hard to understand. Mm -hmm. Now, my view at the time was that when we reached the energies of the W and Z and the Higgs particle, we'd get all kinds of fantastic new clues. Mm. So I found it very, very surprising that any colleagues would be so convinced yeah. that you wouldn't be able to get important clues that would shed light on the validity of a fundamental new theory that might in fact be valid. Mm -hmm. Now, if you analyze it 34 years later, I'm tempted to say we were both a little bit wrong. Mm -hmm. So the scale of clues that I thought would materialize from accelerators has not come. In fact, the most important clue possibly is that we've confirmed the standard model without getting what we fully expected would come with it. Mm -hmm. And as I told you earlier, that might be a clue concerning the landscape. I think the flaw in the thinking of the critics, though, is that while it's a shame that the period of incredible turmoil and constant experimental discovery that existed until roughly when I started graduate school hasn't continued, mm -hmm. I think that the progress which has been made in physics since 1984 is much greater than it would have been if if the naysayers had been heated and string theory hadn't been developed mm. in that period. And it's had this bonus of benefiting mathematics as well. Mathematics and by now even other areas of physics. Yeah. Because, for example, new ideas about black hole thermodynamics mm -hmm. have influenced areas of condensed matter physics even mm -hmm. in the study of quantum phase transitions, quantum chaos, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. really other areas. Well, let's hope we all live to see some revolutionary triumph that was completely unexpected. That's the best one of all of us. <laughs> well, let's hope so. All right, Edward, thank you very much indeed. Sure thing. Okay. I'm always struck by the precision with which Edward expresses himself and by his avoidance of fuzzy philosophical talk. He's plainly fascinated by the closeness of the relationship between fundamental physics and pure mathematics. He isn't prepared to go further than to say that their relationship is a fact of life. Yet no one has done more to demonstrate that not only is mathematics unreasonably effective in physics, physics is unreasonably effective in mathematics. This, Whitner said, makes sense only if our modern theories are on the right track. One last point. Amazingly, Witten is sometimes underestimated by physicists who characterise him as a mathematician, someone who has only a passing interest in physics. This is quite wrong. When I talked with the great theoretician Steven Weinberg, he told me of his awe at Witten's physical intuition and elsewhere said that Witten's got more mathematical muscles in his head than I like to think about. You can find out more about Witten and his work in my book, The Universe Speaks in Numbers.